and welcome to the Green Sheets podcast, a conversation about intellectual property focused on what matters most to innovators right now. We discuss managing, monetizing and protecting IP in the context of what's happening now in industry, IP law and beyond. I'm your host, Charlie Leslie, part of the IP team here at Apple Yard Lees. Joining us for this episode of the podcast are IP litigation specialists, solicitors Rob Cumming, Bill Lister and Chris Hull. Rob, Chris and Bill, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi, Charlie. Cheers. Hi, Charlie. You've all recently had remote trials in front of the Intellectual Property Enterprise Court, also known as IPEG. So could you tell us a bit more about your experience? Bill, do you want to start? Yeah, we're all used to walking into a court, the usher says, all rise, we all stand up, the judge walks in, we all sit down, and then counsel kicks off. It's very different when you're on a two-dimensional screen. This obviously means we have to do all sorts of preparation before we start. In my case, we had a trial in June in the IPEC, and mine was a case where I was acting for the claimant. We owned a figurative, that is a logo, trademark. We alleged that the defendant had infringed the trademark by using the words, the dominant element of the trademark, and that defendant then sold the goods on to major retailers. What was important was that before we started, we established the ground rules with the judge. So we had two pre-trial CMCs beforehand. The first one was to discuss the bundles and the second one was to discuss the actual technicalities um, and nitty-gritty of the hearing itself. That's, that's interesting actually Bill that you had um, the pre-trial CMC because we, 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 I didn't have one in my trial. There wasn't a pre-trial CMC at all in fact. I don't know if Rob, I don't know if you had a, a pre-trial CMC yeah, I differ from both of you. So Bill had two. I had one pre-trial CMC and you had zero, Chris. Yeah, we had a CMC a, a long time before the actual hearing to set the timetable, but obviously that was pre-lockdown. So we didn't have a post-lockdown CMC to run through the technicalities. So it's interesting to hear that you both had that CMC and I wonder if that actually helped with the, the running of the trial. Did you just turn up then and it was expected that everybody knew how to use the video facilities and how to do all the practical aspects of the remote trial was that sort of taken for granted well it was interesting actually you say that Rob so it was sort of there had been a few trials we had run two already so we we had some understanding of what needed to be done in terms of e-bundles and preparation but it was all actually I was surprised how last minute it was so the actual pre-trial practice um video call was the day before the hearing so that was on the monday so it was getting quite late in my mind and we only got the invitation round the sort of the week before informing us that we would have a practice on the monday before the hearing on the tuesday but it actually you know given that it was quite late it all still still ran quite well i think the reason we had two was i think i think the presiding judge himself actually wanted to have his own mind clear as to how it was going to work so we needed to be sure how e-bundles were going to work and make it quite clear that the court would not accept hard copy bundles i think that was something quite important for us to sort out and establish at the outset and we only called one witness that was my client but he was going to be cross-examined as to credit which causes enough of a problem in a, a conventional open courtroom, but was going to cause even more problems when done remotely because the other side were going to allege that he'd made certain facts up and made certain events up. So that, that could have got quite gritty 
and, uh, and some ground rules had to be established for that. But at the end of our first CMC, the uh, counsel for the defendant turned to the judge and said, uh, Your Honor, I hope you don't mind me asking, but do you expect us to wear robes? And basically said, don't be so damn silly. Of course, we'd look ridiculous wearing robes um, sat in our living rooms. The IPEC don't have a, a, a document, like a, a virtual hearing policy or a, a PDF that you can access that, that sets out all of the requirements for a, a virtual hearing, unlike, for example, the IPO. So, you know, I certainly do quite a lot of IPO hearings, um, whether it's before the IPO itself or uh, whether it's on appeal at the appointed person. And you receive a document well in advance that says this is the access number to the virtual hearing. This is the how, how things will run. This is when the test call will be very strategic and and very helpful but there wasn't any of that in this case possibly because it's still very new in our trial we had three barristers and four solicitors and a judge uh, we had the transcriber we had a member of the public and three witnesses one of whom was in canada and we had the discussion around what people should wear i was actually doing the pre-trial cmc from home so i could turn my video off fortunately that was uh, quite a relief but halfway through the second day of the two-day trial there was a formal request from both sets of counsel to the judge as to whether they may remove their jackets that request was granted because i think it was the hottest day of the year in june so it was a relief to counsel that they could actually dress down so it sounds like chris the policy that you're discussing maybe should have a really important section on what can we wear and what can we get away with wearing it's very easy when you're watching these remote trials remote hearings for your eye to wander around the background of the speaker wondering now what room are they in what are those books on their bookshelves if you watch a live recording of the supreme court which is currently doing remote hearings uh, you'll notice that a number of the justices uh, sit in front of a window and they close the curtains. So their background is merely a set of closed curtains. So there, there is an issue as to whether you do expose the background to your living room, which might be a distraction to others, or whether you sit in front of a completely neutral wall. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because it, you know, if you want, you could think about that strategically. If you had a lot of qualifications, you know, you'd want to be maybe putting those on the wall. No, that's true. But I think it's also important to make sure that if you are going to do it in your home or your living room, that no member of your family decides to wander through the room whilst the hearing is, is, is underway. That's distracting. Well, I dealt with it. I, I actually dealt with it. We'd just come out of lockdown at that point, and. So my wife went and stayed somewhere else with a 15-month-old child purely because it would be almost impossible to run it with a 15-month-old running around the house, banging on the door, trying to get in, uh, and the distractions that ensue because it's a long day. I started at 8 a.m., you know, starting the preparation for the trial. Uh, we had pre-trial discussions with the client and with the barrister. And then the, the trial starts at 10.30, goes on until lunch. You're having to take quite thorough notes. Lunch is generally discussions with your client and again with the barrister. I think I got maybe 10 minutes to quickly run and, and make myself a sandwich. And then you're back into the afternoon session, which goes on till, you know, and then I finished at midnight with the final prep in essentially two rooms. It's a good point because if you're preparing for a conference call, then it might be an hour. Sometimes they can drone on a bit longer. But actually, if you're in trial, 
then you are required to be 100% committed for a full day and late into the evening if it's running to the second day. It will take into account, look, staring, and this judge recognised in RCMC before trial, staring at a screen all day is much more tiring than open court. So you do need more breaks. Much more tiring. And that, that made me think, actually, Bill, that actually, is it possible to properly run an IPEC trial in two days virtually? And I came away from our hearing thinking that actually three shorter days would be better by a virtual hearing because it is more tiring and things take longer. You know, so for example, finding documents, you know, especially on cross we had two expert witnesses and normally in courts, a junior or the solicitor will be there maybe to assist the witness in finding documents in the bundle because they're not accustomed to this. This is the first time they may have been in a hearing. And it's difficult to find the documents quite quickly. So all that takes extra time, in addition to the fact that virtual hearings are more tiring because you're staring at a screen the whole time and, and really having to concentrate. So I came away thinking from it, actually, should there be a, a change in the time frames for virtual hearings? Yeah, so I um, don't see any... Um issue with it being longer but I didn't suffer in the same way that it sounds like you did so our two-day trial was in our boardroom in Leeds with two solicitors me and Chris Thomas and then we had the client there who was a witness and in attendance as if it was a, a courtroom if you like but we didn't suffer in the same way it sounds like you suffered but perhaps then it's down to the environment in which you're in so if you're at home then maybe all of those conditions are okay for you to be able to concentrate for a limited amount of time and then go off and have a break. But if you're required to be there for 12 hours solid, then maybe that's where the, the boardroom with the extra space and a few more facilities perhaps was actually really advantageous because I didn't feel like I suffered in the same way that it sounds like you suffered from being tired looking at screens and so on. So the takeaway point there is go to the office if you can, I suppose, isn't it? Even though I think in my mind, I thought actually you know, it may be easier to do it at home. I've got my everything set up here. I don't have to travel anywhere. But in fact, just traveling 30 minutes into the office um, may be overall advantageous because I'm potentially less tired after the two days. But also it depends who else in your, in your, working at home, a problem I found was that uh, at the time, both my wife was working remotely at home and one of my sons working remotely at home. And it's quite a pressure on your broadband width. And what you don't want is your system to start crashing because other people are having video conferences uh, in different rooms in the house while you're having your trial. It's an important point which came up at our pre-trial CMC and it was addressed also on the first day of the trial, which is that the quality of the signal the video signal was a bit patchy to say the least at the start and so it was resolved by discussion amongst pretty much everybody who was there three barristers four solicitors and a judge and the transcriber by saying that everybody should turn off their videos except for the barrister who was presenting and the judge and at one point it, it turned out it was much better if there was only two video signals. So it was basically the barrister and the judge or the witness and the barrister and everybody else muted and turned it all off. So it's a really practical point. 
But I think it's crucial, actually, speaking. I, mean, I, I spent the early years of my career at the bar where it was drummed into you that you can't speak to a witness while they're giving evidence if you break. But what you don't want is any suggestion whatsoever that while your client or one of your witnesses is being cross-examined, you may have been putting some faces on screen that you hadn't been aware of or done something that could be interpreted as some sort of signal to your client or signal to your witness. And it's an interesting point because I think actually in, in court, obviously everyone's still there and the witness can look at his barrister, he can look at your barrister. But I think on a screen, you don't know who the person's looking at. So you don't know if that witness is looking at your barrister or looking at his own barrister. Um, so it's a very interesting point to come away with. Before we started, we, we'd agreed in mind that we'd only have one witness to be examined. And we both sides agreed that a number of witnesses as evidence would simply be agreed just to try and manage the length and size and difficulty of the, of the whole hearing. But my client at one point told us that he'd prepared a whole sheath of notes to take with him into the virtual witness box. And we, ha we had to tell him, for goodness sake, you can't do that. You can't have any notes in front of you whatsoever. And all you have in front of you uh, is the e-bundle. And that's all he must refer to because he, wa he wanted sheaths of notes, sheaths of, he wanted to make a speech. And I think that's really important to stress to them because if they go into the witness box uh, in a real court, it's obvious what they're carrying into the witness box with them. And they need to be told that because if you don't, the risk of somebody querying what your client is, is, is looking out or relying on it is, is high. Well, this is it. So we had more than 20,000 documents which could have been included in the bundle. That was pared down or filleted to about 5,000. But then my client was expected to be cross-examined on any of those 5,000 documents, which is a bit ridiculous. But frankly, the client wanted to be able to refer to his emails and be able to jog his memory if you like nothing untoward in any way this is what we do every day right somebody says rob can you remember that thing you worked on last year and i say i'll oh, sort of but let me just check i'll refresh my memory and then i'll give you a better answer and so it's really important for your client bill and, and for my client as well to remind them that actually no you can't do this you simply have to go off what's in your head and what is in the agreed trial bundle. Just talking about bundles, actually, I don't think what I really anticipated, um, because this was just at the end of lockdown, and we were only really just starting to open up the office again. And the guidance was e-bundles, not necessarily hard copy bundles. But then when you ask the other side and the barristers, everyone really wants hard copy bundles, you know, because that's what people are used to working with. So quite at last minute, we had to arrange to open up the office, to get into the office, to make sure that we had all of the appropriate materials to prepare about six versions of the bundle. So it wasn't a, a small job um, to do. Fortunately, my colleague who was in Leeds, I'm in Cambridge, um, they were able to attend and, and produce all the bundles, which worked absolutely perfectly on the day. But again, something to be conscious of is even though the guidance is e-bundles, if people request it, you're probably going to be having to do duplicate hard copy bundles as well. So maybe the way forward, and this is a position I think I would advocate, is whoever's responsible for the bundle has to produce the electronic version. It has to be tabbed and paginated with the relevant numbers. And that was part of our pre-trial CMC. But then if anybody wants a hard copy, they have to produce that themselves. 
I think that's a good idea, Rob, actually, but because one of the issues which arose during my trial, and it arose halfway through because it hadn't occurred to any of us, including the judge, that on an, on an e-copy bundle on the screen, there is a PDF page number at the top. That does not necessarily accord with the actual bundle number at the bottom. And we, we had the most uh, appalling difficulties working out which page everybody was on, because if, for sake, sake of argument, your index is three pages long, your bundle starts on page one, but your PDF starts on page four. So we had a discussion with the judge actually during the trial that for future trials, um, it, w- it, it would be best if the page number of the PDF and the page number of the actual bundle on the bottom uh, were exactly the same, even if some pages had to be missed or double numbered or whatever. At the moment, we've got this kind of dual system where we had tabs lettered A to Z, but then we had page numbers as well. And sometimes the page numbers worked, sometimes the tab numbers worked, but they didn't work consistently for everybody who was in the trial. So we had to go throughout the whole trial for two days, referring to both the page number and the tab number, which might not seem that onerous, but what it meant was that during cross-examination, it slowed everything down. So that's one way you could use it to your advantage. If you're trying to interrogate a witness or intimidate them somehow, then that witness is going to struggle to get to the right page quickly as everybody else in the courtroom, the virtual courtroom, will also struggle to get to the right page. So it creates a different dimension of cross-examination, which you might not get in a real courtroom. Just picking up on one point you mentioned earlier, Bill, which was the uh, ability of the witnesses to refer to extra documents outside the agreed trial bundle. And on a related point, at the opening of cross-examination of our client, the counsel who was cross-examining noticed that in the background of the video, he could see myself and the other solicitor, Chris Thomas, and he was quite surprised at that, shall we say. We were appropriately socially distanced, but it did raise the question again of whether we were passing notes to the witness and and of course we were not doing anything of the sort and we were reminded as well and I in fact reminded our witness when we were taking a, a comfort break that we weren't allowed to speak with him because he was still in the witness box and so the judge thanked us and reminded us actually or reminded the witness that he wasn't allowed to speak to us. So it creates a a bit of an odd atmosphere when you're in your own office, the client is there, but then you can't speak to them because there's potential prejudice to the entire case if you do. So that's an important thing to bear in mind where it might be easier in uh, real life to go to the courtroom and you go in different directions for say lunch or for a coffee. We were stuck, we were in the same physical location and so we, I just had to explain, look, these are the rules. This is what we're not allowed to do. And it's really important to keep that in mind if you are using an environment like we did, that those rules are potentially more difficult to comply with. I mean, it's almost like, isn't it, that the court needs to produce a, a, a guidance book, like, a, like the IPEC guide, 
but a a virtual yeah yes virtual t- not not even top tips but because it, it's it strikes me that there's quite a lot of you know there's there's inconsistencies different ways of approaching the virtual hearing depending on who the judges and I think in a normal trial in a normal circumstance that 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 tends to work absolutely fine but here it needs to be quite clear on a virtual hearing exactly what approach is to be taken um, and whether that's by a pre-trial CMC or a document that just gives some consistency. That's the word I was looking for Chris it, it will give consistency and efficiency to the judicial process wouldn't it? But I think the takeaway from this is when we did our trial, um, we had a virtual public gallery, and I don't know, we don't know who they were, of about 28 people uh, that were already able to see the screen. And I wonder whether if you are doing it from the same office, it might be prudent for the solicitors and others to keep themselves out of camera shot while their client or witness is, is giving their evidence so they can't be seen on camera just for the purposes of public perception, also judicial perception. So if you're a long table, solicitors sit at the far ends of the table and the client or witness sits in the middle of the table so there's no chance of us being caught in camera shot. But, but at the same time, you, you, so you need to keep, also keep in contact with your counsel. I was going to say the exact same thing, Bill. How did you both, how did you both stick, stay in contact with your counsel? I mean, the old school way is passing notes across the tables, but... We used WhatsApp. Yeah, we used WhatsApp. We had it on the phone and, and it's also on desktop now. Yeah, 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 yes, exactly. So yeah, we had all that going on. But you, you, you've got to have, and, and counsel don't understand that he's got to keep on checking it. Because what, what I was finding during ours is that there was a time lag between either my barrister WhatsApping me or me WhatsApping our barrister, which on one occasion caused a, a, a momentary confusion. That's something we need to think about. It's not an easy thing to do at all, and it shouldn't be underestimated how hard it is. A lot of moving parts. Yes, because the, the one thing you can't do is achieve that instantaneousness of tugging counsel's sleeve in court. So you have to grab them immediately. In, in a real court, barrister would say to the judge, Your Honour, my Lord, would you excuse me a moment? And the judge would nod. They'd turn around, you'd tell them what you need to tell them, and they'd turn around and tell the judge, Your Honour, my Lord, I am instructed this. But it all takes longer if you haven't used WhatsApp or texting or whatever. So you, you need to factor this into your pre-trial briefings. Was your trial over more than one day? Mine was originally scheduled to be two days. But in our case management conference before trial, we discussed with the judge uh, reducing it to a day. So there were witness statements that we just said we weren't going to rely upon just to try and bring the, the, the length of it down. The other side wouldn't cooperate at all with us. But the judge was, I think, quite grateful that we were prepared to take that step uh, and thereby cutting down on cross-examination. Yes. Another advantage of cutting a trial from two days down to one is, of course, you didn't have the midnight analysis of the transcript of the first day trying to trying to figure out what's actually happened who said what and then prepare and brief counsel for the second day obviously if you're doing a one day trial then you have a different type of intensity because you're trying to do that analysis in the tiny comfort breaks that you have for the five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever. I think as well, I think the transcribers have got a really difficult job in a virtual hearing as well. I think especially we had quite a complex patent infringement case and there's a lot to try and cover if you're a transcriber and to try and understand in a, in a virtual hearing. I think it's harder because as well, we can't, you can't record 
a virtual hearing. But I suppose in an actual trial, if they're there in the courtroom, they can turn around to someone and say, I just missed that word. Can you confirm it? Or what's the name of that person? But there isn't really that opportunity in a virtual trial for the transcriber to do that. Okay, so just kind of looking at what we've discussed today then we've had three trials in a space of about eight weeks during a a pandemic which created some unusual situations but I think what we've learned from it is that it would be helpful to have some kind of rules written down which maybe they don't quite codify it but they just give some guidance as to the type of banana skins that people have slipped up on in the past. It seems like there needs to be a guide and that guide needs to address things like clothing, timings, bundles, hard copies, or e-copies. I think we're all in agreement there that if it's a virtual trial, if you're in lockdown, then e-copies are the responsibility of the claimant. But whoever wants hard copies, do it yourself. Logging in early, so practical tips about when to access the, the virtual trial possibly some timing changes and also some um, reminders about the legal rules, particularly for anyone accessing the hearing, whether it's a claimant, a defendant or a viewer, third party, as well as the witness. So a few takeaway points there. I don't know if you want to add to those. I mean, I would add to that the giving of evidence by witnesses, cross-examination, witness perder, uh, drawing breaks, I would add to it proceedings are not to be recorded or relayed and I would probably also add to it something about the virtual handdown of the draft judgment to ensure that that remains confidential as until the formal handdown. Uh, that's all very fascinating. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you, Charlie. Yeah, thank you very much, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie, and goodbye to everybody. For listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you'd like our IP specialist to discuss on the podcast, tweet us at Appleyard Lees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com. <laughs>